I'm Barbara Bray. Welcome to my Rethinking Learning podcast, where I have conversations with inspirational educators, thought leaders, and change agents. Well, I'm really lucky today. I have someone I've been wanting to talk to for so long, Jimmy Cassis. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Barbara. You're way too kind, but I appreciate it. And I'm really glad to be here as well. Thank you. Oh, this is so neat. I, I've i been reading your books. I love your books. But before I start, I always like to tell everyone a little bit about you. Is that okay? Sure, absolutely. What do you want to know? Well, I'm going to first tell about you. I'm going oh, okay. you know, <laughs> right. to boast about you. Oh, Is that goodness. okay? Sure. I, I know. So Jimmy served 22 years as a school leader, and he's a best-selling author of now three books and almost four, right? Correct. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, you're an amazing speaker. You're a leadership coach, and you're currently serves as an adjunct professor at Drake University, teaching a graduate course on educational leadership. And where is Drake University? Des Moines, Iowa. Des Moines. Okay, mm-hmm. I get it. Now, I, I, I actually, I know some people that went there and they loved it. So, Jimmy, also, you have your own company. You're CEO and president of J. Casas and Associates, aimed at serving teachers, principals, and superintendents in school districts across the country by providing high-quality, practical, and meaningful coaching support. We have to go into a little bit more about all of those because it's uh, it's just so much. And um, you know what? I always like to start out with you and your family. A little bit of background. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in Iowa and I uh, still live in Iowa. Um, I also have a home in Chicago because it's just easier for travel in terms of a hub and flying in and out. But um, the good news about moving to Chicago here recently was my oldest son uh, recently got transferred to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So he is, uh, lives there, and he works for Stryker Corporation, and so um, just feel very fortunate, and he's done really well, and we're very proud of him, obviously, all three of our children. And then my, um, my oldest daughter, uh, or his name is AJ, my oldest daughter's name is Mariah. She also graduated from college, and she now works as a full-time nurse in labor and delivery. So she still lives back at home with Mama in the Quad Cities, um, and she works at the hospital. And then my baby, uh, the youngest, Marissa, is um, 18, and she is a freshman at the University of Iowa. So we're all proud to be Hawks, and we're excited about that and just feel very, very blessed that um, we have three beautiful children, and they really are just very kind young people. And I think as parents, that's all we can ever ask for, right, that they're just good people and they have good hearts. And so that makes, that makes us feel really proud. So thank you for asking. Oh, well, I just, uh, you know, we always want our children to be successful, but kind is not bad. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> we, would, we always love that. And just knowing what your children are doing, it's amazing. Where in Iowa? Uh, we live in the Quad Cities, uh, Bettendorf, Iowa. Oh, Bettendorf. Yep. That's mm-hmm. the name of it. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yep. Mm-hmm. I get it. So is that where you went to school? No, I actually grew up in Muscatine, Iowa, which is about 30 miles south uh, west of the Quad Cities. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, when I, they were in our same conference. And so we always looked at, you know, Bettendorf as the district, right. As the school. So I was feel very blessed and very fortunate to have the opportunity to be the building principal there for 14 years. So. Wow. So before we get there, (laughs) I always like to ask what it was like when you were a student and 
growing up. Yeah, actually, and I'm not sure you really want to know about that, Barbara. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, like I think, you know, I hear this from a lot of educators, especially a lot of school leaders, but like many people, I mean, honestly, I struggled in school. It was not a good experience for me. And for many reasons, my elementary school years were good. I mean, I have very fond memories of a lot of early elementary teachers who I believe truly cared about me, right? And um, loved me and and supported me and tolerated me, right? <laughs> but uh, somewhere along the way, obviously, by the time I got to middle school, I just got lost. I just lost my way. And a lot of that was due to confidence. Uh, a lot of that was struggling in terms of reading. Literacy was always an issue for me. <clears throat> I was good in math. It's funny, as an elementary, I was really good at math, right? Uh, but as I got to middle school, I started, you know, just losing confidence like a lot of our kids do. And by the time I got to high school, obviously, the academic side of that was very, very difficult for me. And, and I struggled a lot. So, yep, the, and not the best memories. But again, not being critical. I mean, I think people do the best they can. And they, you know, they do, you know, they did the best they could at the time. And with what they knew, but, you know, looking back on it, obviously, but certainly I'm not bitter about it. I think all those experiences lead us on a journey and takes us where we are. And, and what do we do with that? Right. That's more to me is what do we do with those experiences that try to, you know, make change in a positive way, moving forward with our, not only our own personal lives, but hopefully in the lives of others, especially when you decide to become an educator. Right. So. Yeah. And so you did become an educator, but was there one experience that really impacted you to become an educator? Yeah, I think there were. I mean, certainly, you know, when I left high school and I finally was able to graduate, I I didn't leave thinking, oh, I want to be an educator, right? Because again, my experience wasn't very good. So that's probably the last thing I was thinking. But certainly I had adults that were educators along the way that uh, were very supportive of me um, and inspired me in that way. And I'll talk a little bit about that later, specifically one person, you know, named Kelly Morgan, who was my assistant principal. But but really, when I left school, I didn't intend to be an educator. Um, I actually had all these other ideas of things I wanted to do. But then again, you know, life comes at you. I wasn't ready again for the rigors of college, certainly. And uh, that did not go well, right, that experience. So I was not only a college dropout once, not twice, but three times. And so uh, because I really just at some point decided, you know, just gave up and just thought, you know, college isn't for me and I'm not going to be able to do this. So it's just too difficult. And so I left and then I decided to go work. And I did that for a year. And I did a sales job, and actually it went really, really well, and they wanted me to stay on. But then I had an event that occurred to me that my mentor, the person who was supporting me and mentoring me in my sales job, uh, ended up getting released, and they had asked me to take his place. And, you know, I'm 19 at the time, and I'm thinking, my goodness, um, I'm taking, the, you know, a 48-year-old, 49-year-old gentleman's job who has children in college and high school and middle school and and they're going to replace him with me. And it, it dawned on me that, you know, he didn't have an education either. And I'm thinking, is that going to happen to me? Like someone, eventually somebody's going to come and say, hey. So that was kind of what prompted me to kind of think, maybe I really need to go back to school and rethink, you know, things. And, and I made that decision. And um, I remember the, how upset the company was at me for leaving. And, I, and it dawned on me at that point and really just, you know, made me realize that they didn't really care about me. They just cared about me as long as I was making the money, right? And so once that that ended, like it did for my friend uh, Randy, then um, obviously I was disposable just like he was disposable, right? And so that prompted me to go back and and rather than support me and say, hey, you know, we want to work something out with you where you can do both, right? No, it was one or the other. And, and then I realized it was really on their part pretty selfish. So I think I made the right decision and went back and 
it's interesting. As soon as I made the decision to go back and really invest in school and invest in my studies, it didn't take long for me to begin to build confidence that I could do this right. And so I just finally committed to it and got it done. Well, you get, I guess you had to have those experiences outside of school, you know, work first to see, because sometimes you have to feel like that passion inside you, you have to have that first. Is that yeah, right? I think it's a good reminder, even as an educator, right? This is what our children deal with, right? And our young students and young adults that sometimes they don't know what they want to do. And yet, you know, we as a society, I think sometimes look at it and say, well, this is your next path that you need to take. And sometimes they're just not ready on that right path, right? They don't have the skills, they don't have the maturity yet, and they're still trying to find their way. And, and so I begin now to think as, you know, post-secondary or post-high school is, these are opportunities, I think, for our young people to figure out themselves. Who are they? And, and give them some time to find themselves first. And uh, I know that's the advice we tried to give our own children was, look, part of going to school is just trying to figure out who you are, right? So don't put so much pressure on you that there's a timeline that, that others expect you to have to get this done and get that done. No, you just you take your own journey and you'll figure it out eventually. So, so I think that's an important reminder for all of us. So That's tough for some, some parents, say. And and kids, they there's you know they they don't want to let people down. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And they and they feel like they're letting them down because someone said they were going to be you know a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, whatever, and it wasn't really their passion. And then all those years, you know, I hear I just hear it, and I think this is great advice for people because yeah, it's funny. My father used to say to me all the time, "Make hard work your passion," because. Um, then it doesn't matter what you decide to do, you'll be successful because you have a tremendous work ethic, right? So don't label yourself that you have to be this or you have to be that. Just make hard work your passion. And uh, whatever you decide to do, you'll be successful. So oh, that's wise, great. Word, I... wise words from a, from a person who never finished school. So, Oh, what a great, great quote from him. I love that. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So how did you get in? So you went into education, uh, you went back, to become a teacher? Or no, is it no, I still didn't go back to become a teacher. I just decided to become a teacher because actually I did my undergrad and, and I still wasn't sure what I was going to do. But I decided at that time that I wanted to be an FBI agent. So I went back and decided to follow that process. And, and they had told me it was going to take a couple of years. So they're like, hey, you need to do something in the meantime because there's you know likelihood that you may not make it. So why would you just wait around for two years? So I decided to go back to grad school. And while I was in grad school... Um, I actually just had some time on my hands, so I decided to volunteer uh, at an elementary school. And that's where I met a woman who, in an ESL program, that I thought, this is pretty cool, right? So I was only, I was only um, volunteering like uh, four hours a week. But then four hours a week became six hours a week, became eight hours a week, became four hours a day. And the next day, you know, I'm kind of pretty much working full time there because they just needed help and I wanted to help and I had the time to do it. So. I just found myself spending a lot of time in the school, and the more I did that, the more I liked it. And I thought, well, why am I not just doing this? Why don't I just go back to school and be a teacher? And so then I went back to school and did uh, my master's called an, at that time at Iowa was called an MAT program, Masters of Art of Teaching, and decided to become a teacher. So wow, do you ever want to be an FBI agent too? Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? It's funny, and uh, I would have become an FBI agent. I actually completed all the exams, got through all of the interviews, and uh, I think there were 13 altogether. I still remember this. The day before Christmas, I got a, um, a letter in the mail telling me that they needed me to give them a call because I'd already gotten my date to go to Quantico, Virginia, because I'd already passed everything, and I just had to go do my final um, testing, I guess, for lack of a better word, and my physical. 
And uh, so I get this letter that says, call us. And I call them and say, like, hey, Jimmy, we just have a problem. We just, your eyesight, uh, you need to, you didn't pass the test. So you need to go back and retake that, right? And I said, oh, okay, so I'll just go back and retake it. Well, I failed it again. So what happened, it, the FBI is no different than like a pilot school and some of these other places that they require you to have a certain vision. At that time, it was 20 over 200. Well, when I had started the process two years prior, it was like 2150. Well, over the span of two years, my eyesight became 2150, 2175, 2200, 2225. And then so my eyes just got worse. Well, it was kind of interesting because you're heartbroken, right? Because this is really thought what I was going to do. I mean, I'd got my picture taken. I got my little, you know, I'm all jacked up for the FBI and I'm going to be moving away. I'm all excited, waiting for my date. And I graduate in May. I'm going to be going in May. And then it's just kind of crushing, right? And uh, I couldn't pass the test. I couldn't pass it. And uh, so I didn't make it in. And it was kind of interesting because all the people, you kind of get to know these people over two years. You spend a lot of time interviewing and going on site. I went to Omaha, Nebraska. I was actually in the Quad City, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, where I went to a lot at that time for these exams and so forth. But yeah, it was kind of, it was interesting uh, because everybody who I worked with, or I shouldn't say worked with, but who worked with me, they all were you know, corrected vision. They all had contacts and glasses, but once you're in, it doesn't matter. But to get in, you had to qualify in a certain range and I couldn't make the range. So, so oh, that, that's crazy that though. Changed, that changed my journey. That's, that's actually when I decided to then go volunteer, right? Cause I hadn't had made the FBI. And so that's why was what I was going to do now. So that's how it happened. Wow, I just learned something new about you. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, I just told this. the world, too, that I'm going to give me a hard time. So. Oh, no, it's so cool. I always, I just love the FBI Barbara, show. you're like Barbara Walters. Don't make me cry. Like, how do you get this out of me, right? Kind of like that. That's, yeah. good, that's, a, that's a good interviewer right there. <laughs> well, I, I, I once had someone say, I, I have something I've never told anyone, and I had to pause, and I said, are you sure you want to tell us? <laughs> yeah, you sure you want to share that? So. <laughs> share that with the that's world? Right. But, yeah. No, but it's, um, that's, I just love, I always thought it'd be so good to do forensics and uh-huh. learn some of these yeah. things. You know, I just think that's really cool. Well, well I got LASIK but, surgery later in my 30s, and I thought, okay, well, uh-huh. I got the corrected vision now, so maybe I should go back and reapply. Maybe they want me still, but, you know, everything no. happens for a reason, right? And you end up where you're supposed to be, so... But well, uh, it's a good reminder, again, that everybody has a story. So we just need to take time to listen to those stories. So That's why I have you on my show. Because <laughs> I, never, I just learned some new things about you, about your own journey. And so becoming an educator, how did you start? What was the first job? Well, obviously, that, like I said, that volunteer job. But the first official paid job was I became a bilingual teacher in Milwaukee Public Schools. So that's where I started my oh, career wow. in Milwaukee Public Schools. Milwaukee and then Milwaukee the, Public Schools, no, MPS. Mm-hmm. Yep. In Wisconsin? Wisconsin, yep. Uh huh. Oh, yep. That's where I started my career. I love, yep. Oh, my and, family's uh, from there. And, yeah, uh, you know, again, I was blessed because I had people who saw something in me and saw some potential in me and encouraged me to go right back to grad school again. I, and I was, I'll be honest, I was tired. I was like, I had just finished grad school. I want to go back again. But they talked me into it. So I had a whole semester off. And then I went right back in January. and went to Cardinal Stritch College in Wisconsin and got my ed leadership program and spent four years in the classroom. And, and at the age of 26, I became a principal for the first time. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So was your first job Bettendorf or was it? No, that was my third principal? job. So I was in three school okay. districts. I was in Milwaukee Public Schools, uh, Iowa City School District in Iowa, because I'd moved back to be closer to family and, and, then, um, and then took the job in 2002 
as the principal of Bettendorf High School. And I was there for 14 years. So 22 years altogether. It was three years in Milwaukee as a, as a principal, uh, five in Iowa City, and 14 in Bettendorf. When you were at Bettendorf, you, you made some big changes there. Well, I think right? uh, I'd like to say we made some big changes, but yes, <laughs> we, 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 had a lot of, yeah. we had a lot of really good people with a lot of really good support that allowed us to do a lot of great things, I think. We're very proud of it. Oh, it's amazing. But from what, I mean, I was reading a lot about you and it said that Bettendorf was named one of the best high schools in the country three times, maybe more, by Newsweek <laughs> and U.S. News and World Report. Yeah. What did you do there? Tell me, you know, Tell me a little bit about how that happened and, you know, the yeah, team you had. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I think, you know, looking at it as back when I went to school, because I was in the same conference, there's no doubt that, you know, Bettendorf has always been looked upon as one of the best schools in the state of Iowa. I mean, just traditionally, they've had that, you know, awesome tradition of excellence. And so you have these perceptions of these places, right? So when I actually go there and interview, and I'll be honest, I didn't think they'd give the you know job to a 34-year-old administrator at that time. And I got it. And so, you know, when you go in, you once you're in there, you start realizing, you know, it isn't exactly how I envisioned it, right? <laughs> like, you know, I've always had this perception of this, you know, Taj Mahal, the facility, a facility, and this just awesome programs. And and it, don't get me wrong, they were really good. I mean, they were, but they weren't as good as I thought they were going to be, right? And you know, I don't say that in a mean way, and I think they, you know, they certainly appreciate that. And it's nothing I've never shared with them before. But certainly there was my perception going in as an outsider, seeing it through my eyes. Now you start thinking about culturized, right? And this is to me what it's all about is how we see our cultures. And we spend a lot of time seeing it through our eyes when we really need to start seeing it through the eyes of the children, the eyes of the staff, the eyes of the parents and the community, et cetera. So the bottom line to me is I, my perception was I was walking into an, an adult-centered culture where decisions were made based on what was best for the adults, not necessarily what was based for the students. But yeah, they were still having tremendous success. So think about that. The The challenge of that is how do you then move an organization that is already successful and already sees themselves as successful, so why would they do anything differently? Well, the reason they need to do it differently is because what they didn't see is they could still be so much better, right? Like you have actually rested on your laurels and you're doing some really good things, but we need to not only do good things, we need to do great things, and we need to do great things not only for most of our kids, but we need to do great things for all of our kids, and so to shift that mindset is diff- very, very difficult. And I tell people that all the time, that when you walk into a very successful school, that's a different kind of challenge than walking into a school that's been labeled as a failing school, right? And so that just brings other types of challenges. So the good news is um, we were blessed to have, you know, just a really core group of people, I think, who understood that. And I think the second thing in terms of success is, and this is what I see today, is the ability to sustain leadership over a long period of time. Because the more change you have in leadership, I think the more issues that we create for ourselves because of the constant shifts and the constant changes. And I think that sometimes can create stress on an organization because they never know, well, where are we going? Where, you know, what's the vision? Now, now we have a new vision. And, and all those things that come every time you have change in leadership. And so, you know, hopefully if we're, if we're doing it right and we're building a community of leaders, right, that's what I like to think of it, like no principal can do this crazy job by themselves, and yet we walk into it sometimes thinking we can. And we have to realize that the only way that we're going to be truly successful is the ability to build our capacity, and that is how do we grow more leaders in our organization. So that means we have to now give permission to people to lead, we have to invite them to lead, and hopefully we have to inspire them to want to lead. 
Wow. I'm going to stop you there about that because I have had leaders, you know, I've worked with schools and you see that there are some individuals that really don't belong there, but they have hard time figuring out ways to say, maybe this isn't the right place for you. Yeah. Well, that's a tough one, you know. Well, it's a tough one because it's a skill set, right? I mean, think about it. Like what I told you when I became a principal at the age of 26. How is 26-year-old Jimmy going to walk into an organization and tell a veteran teacher who's been teaching longer than I've been alive, hey, you're not effective, right? And so, and, and so one, we don't have those skills, right? Two, we are concerned because we know that we have to go into an organization. And most people, for the most part, recognize that culture is important, right? That you have to have a healthy culture. Well, when you begin to take those conversations on, it creates quickly some tension, creates some stresses, and creates drama. I don't, you know, lack of a better word. And so we pull back because we think that it hurts our culture, right? So we don't want to hurt our culture. And so we begin to avoid those conversations because we don't have the skills on how to have the conversation without hurting the culture. And this is where I think we have to give our our school leaders a pass when they first take on the role because, yeah, who has that skill, right? So you have to develop that skill over time. So two things have to happen. One, because it is a skill, the only way you can get better at it is you have to have the conversation, right? And so what eventually I learned was that by avoiding the conversations, I was actually hurting my culture worse, right? Because I wasn't having the conversations. And the only way to improve your culture is, yeah, you have to have the conversations because, but you have to do it in a way that doesn't hurt your culture, which takes a tremendous skill set. So you've got, the only way you're going to get better is you got to keep having them. Well, it's it's difficult because some parents think the culture is teacher-directed. Some people think that, why change something that's good? Especially in a high-performing high school like that was. And um, I've, you know, I've seen when walking around, I've done classroom observations and then give some advice and try to realize, just like you are, it's all about the kids and it's all about the culture. It takes some real skills and what kinds of conversations. And that's kind of what you've brought in in some of your, the books that you've written. You give those ideas, right? And Well, and that's the whole idea of culturize, right? Because yes, it is all about the kids, but we also have to be, I think we have to be really careful to recognize that it's also about the adults, right? It's really about the community. Mm-hmm. It's everybody, right? We can't, yes, because right. We, we don't want to create divisions, number one, and we need adults being healthy and feeling inspired and believing that what they do is making a difference, right? Like when we all went into the profession, we went into it because we want to make a difference. So, I mean, sometimes I get pushback from people because I think some people think I'm a little Pollyannish on things. But the reality is this. I don't believe that people who went into the profession went in there to say, hey, look, I, I just go into the profession because I want to be average. I'm just going to go just hang out. And just, <laughs> you, know, you know, some days I'll do okay, some days I'll, I don't think that happens. I think people go in because they want to do really good things for kids. But what also happens is because they get exhausted, because they get tired, because of, you know, a, a, a myriad of variables that come into play over time, they begin to lose their focus, right? They forget their sense of purpose of why they went into the profession. So I think part of leadership is, one, reminding people, keeping it on the forefront, keeping them focused, keeping them inspired, keeping them energized, and reminding them that what they do is does make a difference. But not just telling them, and this is where, to me, it's a little different, is you also have to show them, right? And in order to do that, I think you have to lead from a core, Right. I still remember reading my first book by Terrence Dio on leading with soul. And these are things that influenced me in my thinking in terms of leadership and also experiences that I had in MPS and the experiences that I had 
I mean, none of us ever have this job figured out. And I think we have to recognize that we're always evolving in the role of a principal. I'm certainly not the same principal at year 22 that I was at year one, right? Because we all evolve and mature in the role of leadership, right? It's no different than anything else. So as long as we're willing to continue to learn and get better and reflect on the work that we do and then do something with it, then I think we can do so much better, right? And so the idea of culturize is really leading from a core, a core, right? And it's in those cores for me, obviously, that in culturize where, you know, being a champion for kids, expecting excellence, carrying the band, and being a merchant of hope. And I think when you begin to lead from your core, and it isn't just telling people what your core is, because we do have to tell people what our core is, but more importantly, we have to live that core. Because if you're not living it, then it really comes across as pretty disingenuous. And quite frankly, it's pretty fake. And then we'd end up losing credibility. So, so I think it holds us ourselves accountable to a higher standard that when you communicate and share your core, then it inspires you hopefully and motivates you to want to live that core. Wow. I'm into passion, purpose. I'm doing a lot around defining the why, which is the core, which you're talking about. So um, let's talk about your book because you brought it up. I mean, I just, I'm going to just tell the title again. It's um, Culturize Every Student Every Day, Whatever It Takes. I, it is so true. We have to work on this every day because something always comes up and we always have to be there. And like you said, if we have to be champion for all students, that first chapter, I just go back and read it over and over again. <laughs> do you want to, do you want to say anything about that champion? Maybe even who was your champion? Well, definitely champion for kids. So let me share this. I think sometimes people confuse that, right? Like, Again, it's this whole idea that sometimes, you know, there's always going to be a critical uh, lens on things, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But I always try to remind people that don't misunderstand that. Being a champion for kids doesn't mean that we're going to make excuses for kids and we're going to let kids get away with everything and kids are always going to be right and the adults are always wrong. It doesn't mean that at all. Champion for kids really means to hold kids to the highest of expectations. It really does. Um, you know, my experience with educators, wherever where I've been is, you know, they just care a lot about children. And so when you care about children and you have kids that are struggling in school, it's really easy to start feeling sorry for our kids. And, um, and when you begin to look at the demographics of that, if you begin to look at the ethnic backgrounds of that, a lot of times that falls on poor kids, children of color, children with special needs. We start feeling sorry for our children and we can't do that. Right. I mean, the reality is they, because when we begin to feel sorry, it's my opinion that we begin to we pull back, right? We begin to make things easier for them, and we shouldn't be doing that. Uh, it, to me, it's an equity issue, right? So we really should be holding all kids to the same standard, all kids to the same accountability in terms of what we expect from them. But what we need to begin to do is to begin to see it uh, through their lens and be more empathetic, right? Our kids don't need our sympathy. What they need is our empathy. And so if we can remember what it feels like, again, to be a child, to struggle in school, to to know that what it feels like to have fear, to have anxiety, to not want to fail, to worry about what other kids are going to think about us, to not want to let people down. I think it's just remem remembering those things. So that to me is what being a champion for kids is. So, you know, definitely I had that in my experience uh, at the secondary level for me that, like I said, I talk about him in the book and that's, you know, Mr. Kelly Morgan, my assistant principal, who truly was my champion, right? Not just for me, but for many other students. And yet he had a very difficult job as the disciplinarian, right? 
But yet, I mean, this guy went out of his way constantly. He knew me. He knew my family. He helped my family navigate some really difficult things because when your parents aren't quote unquote educated, right, they don't understand the system. And so who's going to help our families that, you know, right now who are families who don't like the systems, who don't like the school buildings, who, who have bad experiences. So, you know, how do we get people who truly become these champions? So that was definitely Kelly for me. And um, I think you mentioned earlier to me when we were talking that, you know, the opening chapter talks about, you know, exactly that, an experience that I had with a baseball coach. And, you know, my parents, again, they, you know, not that they're right. I'm not judging them. They, they parent the way they knew how to parent. But, you know, they, they didn't certainly say, hey, Jimmy, no, you know, you, sh- you need to keep sticking with it and doing that. No, they're like, yeah, you know, you're not playing. You should be playing, you know, so they get, they get disappointed, too. And so I just kind of gave up, right? I didn't think my baseball coach cared about me. And I didn't feel that. And I just got frustrated with it because I didn't have the skills as a 17 year old, but I had a lot of talent. I mean, I was, you know, how do you start on as a 14 year old freshman, but yet, you know, two years later you, because you just don't have that maturation. And so, so bottom line was, is that, you know, I quit and, uh, but I didn't want to quit. Right. That's the, that's the conflict, right? I didn't really want to quit. I, what I wanted him to say was, no, I'm not going to let you quit, right? I'm not going to let you quit. I know what it feels like. I know you're frustrated. Let me talk to you. Let's work this out. I, you're still an important part of the team. We still need you. Here's what we need you to do. Here's what I'd like you to do. And I'm going to keep working and giving you hope that there's an opportunity for you. And But that never came, right? It was just pick up my uniform, shake your head, and remind me again how disappointed you are and thinking I'm a quitter. And and then just immediately dismiss you. Well, I just spent three years with you, right? How you know, you've been watching me play since I was a youth, right? You're the high school coach. You've been watching me forever. You know my family, but yet you didn't even try to even convince me to stay, right? And again, that's a good reminder for all of us as adults. But again, you know, I don't hold it against them. I mean, you know, certainly later on in my years as I became older, I, you know, I was having I had an opportunity to have a conversation with him about that. And, you know, you move on, right? You know, he did the best he could. Those were his skills at that time. And so I don't judge, you know, that's the thing where I think I've, I've changed and matured in my role, not only as an educator, as a school leader, but just in life, you know, is judge less, right? And people come from different places. They do the best they can. And, and, um, and so who are we to judge? I don't want people judging me. Think about that. If you don't judge me in my first year as a principal, my fifth year as a principal, I don't want people <laughs> doing that to me. I did the best I could, right? Or I knew how, or, I, or that I knew how. And um, we just get better. Just reading that about you with the baseball coach and and I'm just thinking, you know, that probably happened to a lot of people. Some things happened to me that and um, but it probably did change you with the idea that as an educator, that empathy piece, you, you that probably if he had turned around and said the things that you really wanted to hear, that could have changed everything for you. But in the way it made you stronger. Yeah. And sometimes you lose your way in that too a little bit, right? I mean, yeah. everybody, yeah. you know, experiences that people have, you know, sometimes something happens and you're like, hey, I want to be like that. And sometimes things happen to you and like, I'm never going to be like that, right? So it's just, yeah. you know, it's it's interesting, isn't it? And that's the journey of life. Where's it going to take you? And, you know, you just never know. Mm-hmm. So I think it's because it's what we do with those experiences. To me, that's the difference. A lot of people have the same experiences. The difference is some people don't do anything with those experiences, Right. And so what do they do with them? Do they become bitter, right? Does it inspire them? Does it motivate them? Does it frustrate, you know, what happens? What do they do with that? So, and I think there's where, you know, but people are different, right? And so it's just. Well, you're modeling one thing. It's uh, it's so easy to hold a grudge. It's so easy to, 
be resentful and never move on. It's, it's the choices we make. And if we can model and ex- share even the good, the bad things that we did and the experience we have, others can learn from us too. That's right. I mean, we're not perfect. That's the thing. It's all of us. So maybe that goes to the next chapter about expecting excellence. Yeah, and again, that's the same type of concept, right? It isn't just holding a high standard, but expecting excellence is really about expecting excellence from ourselves. It's about modeling the behaviors that we want to see repeated, because I'm a big believer in what we model is what we get. So, uh, And so there again is the idea is, I think as adults, sometimes we necessarily aren't the best modelers, right? Especially in schools. And it's interesting, again, if you begin to see it through the lens and through the eyes of the children, and you began to talk to kids, you will find out if we really invest in them that sometimes we don't model the best things. We, we tend to say a lot of things, but we don't necessarily do the things. And we as adults complain about what kids do, and yet we're actually modeling the exact same behaviors, right? And so sometimes, again, we just, we're hypocritical, right? We're disingenuous. And so uh, it's reminding people that, hey, and how do we begin to, to level the organizations a little bit? And we begin to see students differently and that they have skills and that they have talents. And then how do we use their voice? How do we use their talents to help us lead, right? To help us in our our teachings and and their own learning and how we invest and all these things that we know are important. But but I think the job of a teacher, too, is just really difficult because they have so many stresses, right? From everything in terms of, you know, testing fatigue to the expectations and things are just quickly coming at them all the time, too. They want to be great, too. So how do we support our teachers and how do we work together? Now, I always tell people, you know, everybody, we're all in the trenches. You know, there's, there isn't this thing as, well, you don't understand because you're not in the trenches anymore. No, we're all in the trenches, right? The teachers, the, our custodial, our support staff, our paraeducators, our guest teachers, our teacher librarians. I mean, everybody, school nurses, doesn't matter what your role is. But if we are the adults, it is the adult's responsibility to work together to make great things happen for kids. Because if we aren't able to do that within our own profession, within our own school walls, nobody else is going to do that for us. And so I'm not sure why that is so difficult to figure out. I think it's actually not as difficult as we make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're, it, they do say it takes a village. Absolutely. And it really does. And we all, and we need to care and be kind and for everybody that's part of that village. So, um, I want people to read your book, so we're not going to talk about the whole thing right now. But you have a new book coming out, and that's coming out in, pretty soon, right? Yeah, it's coming out here, uh, I think, uh, early December here. So within the next month, Stop Right Now, it's called uh, 39 Stops to Making Schools Better. And um, again, I just feel very blessed and owe a great deal of gratitude to my co-author, Jeff Zoll, who actually has been my inspiration when it comes to writing and built my confidence and worked with me and believed in me and continues to, you know, model for me. And I continue to learn from him. So both him and Todd were um, very uh, gracious and giving me the opportunity to write my first book with them called uh, What Connected Educators Do Differently. And that then eventually led to another project called Start Right Now, Teach and Lead for Excellence, which came out uh, a couple years ago. And then because of that, uh, really gave me the confidence and, uh, Again, was fortunate enough to have a gentleman by the name of Dave Burgess, my current publisher on those books, reach out to me and say, Jimmy, I think you got it in you. I want you to write your own book, right? Write your manifesto. And and I've seen your blogs, and I love your writing and love your message. So I think you need to put that into a book. I'm like, uh, I don't think so, Dave. <laughs> That's a whole different <laughs> ballgame, right? 
but there were moments, man, I wanted to quit. Like, I, I don't think I can do this, right? Because again, you just, you begin to doubt and writing is really difficult. Um, it really is. And, uh, and so I think that's one thing that a lot of people fear is putting that out there in public for people to see. It's, it's really, I think it's really opening up yourself and being very vulnerable to do that. But I'm glad I did it because when it's over, it feels, you know, exhilarating, right? It's, it's what an accomplishment. And uh, obviously, you know, if you look at it now, my mama, you know, really super proud of me. My family's proud of me. And that's at the end of the day, that's really what matters, right? The people that care about you are proud of you. And, and hopefully that you're proud of yourself, that you're able to model the way, right? Set a goal. Mm-hmm, and I say this mm-hmm. all the time. He has kids every day to write in schools, don't we? And there are kids who struggle and have fears and have anxieties. And sometimes we don't necessarily treat them with the right empathy and kindness and patience that we should. And yet, what are we modeling? Because most adults aren't willing to put themselves out there and write. You know, we forgot what it feels like to feel that. And so this is why we don't have more educators blogging. This is why we don't have more educators writing books and just writing is because it's no different, right? And so yet we ask kids to do this every day. So for me personally, it was a great reminder to remember, hey, this is what our kids are dealing with every day. So you can't quit. You got to do this because you got to show them. You're not going to ask them to do anything you're not willing to do yourself. And that's been a very good uh, mantra for me just to remember always. And I think it's important for people to have mantras, right? Because I think that's part of who they are. And um, it allows you, I think, to lead and by modeling the way. So anyway, that's what my thoughts on. Wow. Well, I think we're going to end on that because that was just wonderful. I mean, the whole, I know from reading your book how tough it was to write because you mentioned that. Yes, it was. But, but I have to tell you, you put the words together beautifully. You made it so it was very clear. It helped me a lot understand culture better. So I'm excited about your new book and looking forward to that, to share that also. And we will, we're going to put a blog post together. So we'll be putting the links up for everyone so they can access all of your resources. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Thank I learned, you, Barbara. I learned a lot about you today. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's well. I appreciate that. So thank you very oh. much. I feel very blessed, and I'll always be grateful for what life has brought to me. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Jimmy. Thank you so much. This God was wonderful. Bless. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Jimmy Casas. Look for the complimentary blog post about Jimmy, where we pull together resources, links, and more about his books, all for you. So please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave a review. You can also subscribe to my website at barbarabray.net to receive announcements and updates so you don't miss any of the conversations.